Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Super excited, actually, you know, with the founder that we have today, you know, quite a powerhouse. I think that we're going to be learning a lot. We're going to be learning about going from corporate to startups, then from startups to building your own. I think that we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, financing, and everything in between. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nikki Petchett. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So originally from Minnesota. So yes. tell us, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Minnesota? It was great. Minnesota is an incredible place to grow up. I grew up in a family uh, just outside of Minneapolis, um, super handy family, totally middle class, but with a mom who was extremely handy and fixed everything and built everything around our house. Um, and with an extended family that believed everyone needed to know how to use power tools at a very young age. Um, and with a dad who's an entrepreneur, he started a business in our basement. And as I grew up, his business grew and moved out to offices and added employees. And so I got to watch all of that. And I think what I learned from both of those things is I'm really handy. I love building things. I have tremendous respect for people who are much, much better than I am at building things. Um, and I also had a lot of the same traits that made my dad both happy and reasonably successful as an entrepreneur. And so I left growing up in Minnesota thinking I love building things and someday I want to be an entrepreneur like my dad. And how is, how is a senior dad, you know, going through the ups and downs? Because people think that entrepreneurship is like what you see on the press, you know, everything is super glamorous, but it's not glamorous at all, actually. You know, there's a lot that happens, you know, behind the flashes. So how was senior dad going through those ups and downs? Uh, that's a great question. I think that, it is one thing that I've reflected on a lot, transitioning from being an executive to being an entrepreneur, uh, is you just really have no idea and will never know how painful and excruciating and miserable it is, especially in the early days to be an entrepreneur until you're in the seat. And so even growing up, I saw ups and downs with my dad and I would see him get really frustrated or worried or stressed. But I didn't understand nearly how difficult it was. And even in my early experiences, you know, I was reasonably early at Thumbtack and I was really close to the founders. I always thought, oh, I'm, I'm like another founder. And it's so funny in retrospect, like I was not, I had no idea the excruciating pain and misery that they had been through and that they were continuously going through until after I started my own company and then went back to all of them. And I was like, why did you tell me to do this? This is awful. And I'm like, yeah, it's real bad. Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it so bad? <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, so in your case, you know, you ended up going to Michigan and obviously no, 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 nothing, nothing surprising there. You studied business. So right after Michigan is where you get, you got right into it, you know, and, and you didn't want to test the waters right away on the market. You, you went at it all in in two different jobs at the same time. So how was that journey like? Yeah, so I went to Michigan because they had a great business school and because I did not get into Wharton. So Michigan and Wharton were tied for the best undergrad business school in the country. And I didn't get into Wharton, which I would say was a lifelong chip on my shoulder, which I think is important and helpful in building anything. Um, and so I went to Michigan 
and um, was able to graduate in three years. And in that process, um, I both got a job at Pepsi, which I wanted to do like a big brand job and understand how do you build brands that build incredible affinity with customers, millions of people. And so I took that job. And then in that process, I'd also met Stephen Ross, who was in the process of giving money to Michigan to rename the business school after him. And he asked me to come work for him. And because I was graduating college in three years, I was moving to New York City by myself. And so I said, well, I already signed this contract with Pepsi and I'm going to work during the day for them, but I don't have any friends. So I can work nights and weekends for you if that works. And um, that seems kind of crazy in retrospect, but seemed totally rational at the time. And so I did. I worked nights and weekends for the related companies working on residential real estate by the largest residential developer in Manhattan. And it was this incredible juxtaposition of during the day working on this big, iconic brand that was sugar water, but had so much following with consumers. And then nights and weekends working on apartments that were tens of thousands of dollars a month in rent that were beautiful, incredible apartments, but that people felt almost no affinity to. And it was this moment of like, residential real estate is messed up. Like, why aren't there brands? This is the most important thing in your whole life. And yet you feel more affinity for sugar water that you buy at 7-Eleven. This doesn't make any sense. So then, so then business school, at what point, you know, do you decide it's time to go to business school? Back to studying. Yeah. So I never actually planned on going back to business school because I did business school undergrad. But again, I'd moved to New York City by myself uh, with literally no friends, which is a very lonely thing that I don't recommend to anyone. Uh, and I worked all the time. And finally, I had ended up getting a roommate who was a year ahead of me at Michigan. And I met through um, some older sorority sisters who introduced her to me. She was then my roommate. She was in investment banking and she was miserable. She's working 110 hours a week. And so she was applying to business school to get out of uh, investment banking. And I was like, well, you're my only friend. So if you're doing it, I guess I'll do it too. Which school should I apply to? And she was like, well, I guess, I don't know, Harvard. And so I only applied to HBS and I only did it because she was doing it. But in the process, I fell in love with the school and the idea of being able to think about business and career and meet really incredible people. And so um, applied and thank God I got in. It was an absolutely incredible two years of learning and thinking about business, but also meeting just an incredible network of people who are now my husband, my best friends, my colleagues. And so love that place. And it was incredibly formative in my development as a leader. Well, hey, Harvard Business School, you definitely took out the chip from Wharton. Eh? So, uh, so good stuff. So, I mean, the, 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 the network of, of, of HBS, you know, is, is pretty insane. So how do you think, you know, it has served you later on as, as you were, you know, perhaps pursuing your, your professional career? Uh, so, you know, one thing I think a lot about is you really just become the average of the people around you. And so, I went to HBS having worked two jobs in New York City, graduating college early, and I always felt like sort of an outcast. People just thought I was crazy. Like, why do you work so much? I, I read uh, like any free time I had, mostly because I didn't have any friends, but also because I love to read. I was reading business biographies of Rockefeller and Buffett, and I felt like such an odd duck. And going to HBS, I found my people. I found people who were sort of on par with me in terms of crazy ambition about what they wanted to do and work ethic that didn't necessarily make a ton of sense. And 
I really just felt like I found my people. And so um, having that group of people both in business school and then in the years after business school where I was at Bain and I loved being at Bain, but I wasn't sure how my path was going to go from Bain, which was a great job, but where I felt like one of you know thousands of really good people to a job where I felt like I was doing something that was what the world needed and what my skills could uniquely contribute to the world. And having a group of supporters of other really ambitious, talented friends who some of them were doing wild, risky, crazy things. Many of them were also doing things that weren't wild and crazy, but that were challenging, interesting jobs. Um, and I think that support network has been wildly helpful for taking risks and knowing you'd be okay and for brainstorming about what you might do and getting to watch through um, the eyes of somebody else. Like, what does it feel like when you take this leap? Um, and so wildly helpful. And then my husband has been the most unbelievable partner in supporting doing really crazy things over and over in my career, um, like starting a company when I was six months pregnant with our third kid and taking her to Malibu to launch our second market. Like he's been just a wild and incredible supporter. He's also an entrepreneur and so deeply understands what that is like and couldn't have done any of that without him. Now, you know, with your experience in Bain, you know, that's, that's very interesting here because, you know, I find that when you go into consulting, you get to be able to, uh, and you were there for eight years, so, so yeah. quite, a, quite some time. Uh, you are able to really grab a big problem and really break it down into smaller uh, problems. And, yeah. you know, then you go start tackling one after the other. Yeah. How do you think that that experience uh, at working at Bain maybe has, has served you as an entrepreneur later on? Yeah, I think that is a really good encapsulation of one of the skills that you get at Bain and I think other consulting firms as well that is wildly helpful, which is take a problem that seems insurmountable and break it down into component parts that are surmountable. And so when you break it down, it is actually just the scientific method where you come up with a hypothesis and then you come up with sub hypotheses and then you figure out, well, what has to be true or not true to prove or disprove each of these. And that ladders up to how you get to an answer. Um, but it's an incredibly powerful thing to do in the face of really complicated business problems. So I spent a lot of time while I was at Bain working for private equity firms and we would help them on diligence cases where they would say, uh, one example I worked on was a whole line hardware company, which means a company that manufactures the components that go between a power pole and a power line. It is a connector piece that is a ceramic piece, like the most obscure industry. How do you size the industry? How do you know if these guys are any good? How do you know what their projections for growth mean and if they're reasonable? And so taking something like that and having three or four weeks to be able to confidently tell a group of really smart people who know way more than you do about the industry and the deal what they should be thinking about. What should the growth rate be? What do you need to believe? How should be underwriting the deal? Um, all of that is, it's an incredible chance to say, I didn't know that whole line hardware was a category, but now I do. So how do you size it? And how do you think about um, answering all these questions? And you break it down into components and that is wildly helpful. And then you create the work plan that says, okay, here's my hypothesis tree. What is the work that I need to do? And what's the work that my team needs to do to get to these answers? Um, and so I think that is one of the most helpful skills that consulting teaches you. Uh, for anybody who does not have an experience of going through consulting, I'd highly recommend spending time with a consultant, putting together a hypothesis tree and a work plan, because I think that training your brain to think that way 
enables you to solve problems more effectively, but I also think it enables you to be really brave in the face of scary problems that at first glance, you don't know anything about how to solve. If you can just take that breath and say, okay, well, what's the hypothesis? And being able to break that down is wildly helpful for doing things that feel very, very scary on the face of them. That's so cool. Now, in your case, I mean, here you are, you know, making a killing at Bain, you know, obviously now eight years in, you know, you probably had an amazing salary. Why do you decide to go into the world of startups? Yeah, so um, I loved my time at Bain. I learned so many things that... Uh, I never would have learned elsewhere. And I'd gone, I'd originally gone to Bain because I saw lots of people at Pepsi who had the consulting skill set, who were getting promoted faster, and who had this analytical toolkit that I wanted. So I knew I was going for the training. I ended up staying quite a bit longer than I anticipated because I kept learning. And the people there are incredible. And I got to work on really interesting projects. Um, but I was pregnant with my first kid. Um, I have pretty much only one mode of working, which is working all the time. And I had this moment in having my first kid where I thought, if I'm going to work 90 hours a week, no matter what, I need to work on something that really matters to my kid. They're going to understand why I am out in the world and I have to be working like this. And so Bain has a really generous maternity leave policy. And I spent almost seven months off um, getting to explore the question of what should I be doing? And so I started with lots of conversations with um, consumer products companies about executive roles. And I was sitting with a friend who had started a venture backed business who also lives in the Bay Area and telling him about all these job offers that I had and should I do this or should I do that? And he looked at me and said, You are in the midst of history being created and you are not participating. And to this date, I think that was still the most judgmental thing anyone had ever said to me, but it was also true. I'm sitting in the Bay Area and the like hotbed of innovation and talking about taking a job that is not inventing the future. And I took a breath and I was like, you are totally right. And so I spent the rest of my maternity leave meeting with 150 entrepreneurs and venture investors trying to find the team that I wanted to join. But I knew that I needed to go do something where as an early employee, I mattered and spending the time that I was going to spend working would change the trajectory of a business that was needed in the world. And so I found the Thumbtack founders um, pretty early in the size of that team and just fell in love with them. They're incredible human beings. They were working on a problem that mattered to the world. And I felt like I could jump in and I could help. And I knew that I could make a difference. And so I ended up joining the Thumbtack team and got to build go-to-market functions and help build that into what is now a multi-billion dollar business. And it was incredible training in how to think bigger than I'd ever thought before and how to build towards a dream even when the reality today wasn't what you knew it could be in the future. That's amazing. And and for those that are listening, you know, we had Marco as well on the podcast, so you all should go and listen to his episode as well. So so Nikki, how big was Thumbtack when when you joined them? Thumbtack was about sixty-five people when I joined and they had not yet announced their hundred million dollar round from um, Google Capital, but they had closed it. So they were on a great trajectory, um, but it was a pretty small company that was ready to explode. And so I came in and the first role I took, I was working with their head of product, who's a wonderful leader and very good friend, who I, I was helping build out our, our category management team, trying to figure out what each category should look like and how the product should vary by category. I helped build that team. 
for about seven months. And then I was pregnant with my second kid and Marco called me on a Sunday and he said, um, we need to make a switch with our CMO. I want you to step into that role tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I can't be a CMO. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the right person. I'll find us one. I can run a search. I can find someone incredible. And he said, no, I already ran search and it's, it's going to be you and the board wants you to do it. And so I, I said, well, I got to talk to the board about it because the board doesn't know how unqualified I am. And so I put together a spreadsheet of all the things I didn't know that a CMO should know, literally line by line, all of the things I did not know. I took it to David Lowey at Google Capital and he looked at the spreadsheet and I was trying to explain why I shouldn't be the CMO. I'll run a search. I'll find someone. And he said, no, please. I, I got to run marketing at Google. I have all sorts of great people in my network. We'll teach you how to do it. And so that doc ended up becoming a work plan for conversations that I had with people like Gary Briggs from Facebook, who's CMO at Facebook, who's also just an incredible human and an amazing marketing leader. Um, and so we went line by line and said, he said, well, I'll teach it to you. It'll take me three months to give you a good overview, but we're going to get it done. And so that's how I ended up getting to lead marketing. And we built out all sorts of go-to-market functions, but um, that, and, and I think that to me really encapsulates one of the things I love about Silicon Valley and about the venture mindset, which is you just have to be able to learn fast. Like if you care deeply, you're willing to work really hard and you're resourceful about how to learn faster than anyone else. That's really all that's ever asked of you. And that was a really incredible lesson in exactly that. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Obviously, you know, Thumbtack, you know, a, a billion dollar company, you know, nowadays. Uh, but in this case, you know, for you, you get to participate in a rocket ship like that. I mean, amazing experience. At what point do you realize, hey, I think it's maybe time for me to, to build my own? Well, a couple things happened kind of in parallel. So. I'm now pregnant with my third child while I was at Thumbtack. I was about four years in and I built this really fantastic team that was a separate marketing team. And Marco and I were talking about how do we make this team of incredible leaders really successful? And the correct answer was a bunch of my team needed to be embedded 
in the product and growth organizations in order to be super successful. They shouldn't be a distinct team. And so I said, I think we've got to break the team up and half of it goes under product and engineering. And the other half of it, I think should report to you. And Marco looked at me and said, well, what about you? And I said, I think it is time for me to move on. And I think the company will be in a great spot. Um, I'm going to have this baby in six months so I can sail off into the sunset and uh, take time off and that should work well for everyone. And so we agreed on that plan. Then the wildfires happened in Napa and Sonoma, 6,000 houses burned down. And in the aftermath, homeowners couldn't figure out how to get their homes rebuilt. And I knew firsthand from being at Thumbtack at that time that existing marketplace solutions were not close to good enough to help solve a problem as complicated as building a house from scratch. And so my now co-founder, Jack, called me. He had lost his house in Sonoma and he said, we need to start this home builder and I want you to do it with me. And I said, absolutely not. I'm pregnant. I have have to wrap up at Thumbtack. I know I shouldn't do this, um, but I'll advise you. And so I started working around the clock, helping in the early days of Homebound. Um, And at the same time, Marco said to me, you're a founder you should go be a founder. And that was a huge push for me. Somebody who I respected that much and I knew was an incredible entrepreneur who knew me really well and who confidently said, you're a founder. Uh, And so I took that and I said, all right, it's time to build the next generation home builder. I know that the world needs it. And I think that I can help it come into existence. And so um, we got started and here we are four years later. That's amazing. Now, for the people that are listening, what is the business model of Homebound? Like, how do you guys make money? Yeah. So think of Homebound as any other general contractor. We are just digitally enabled. So our mission is to make it possible for anyone, anywhere to build homes using technology. And for people who haven't built homes before, haven't participated in construction, it is the least digitized industry globally. So I'll have a lot of people say, oh, it's just like healthcare. It's not like healthcare. It is like healthcare 10 years ago. There is no modern software for the industry. Um, and by the way, home building is the darkest corner of all of construction from a technology perspective. The software that does exist for the industry is for individual spot components and doesn't integrate together. And so uh, nearly everything that is done in construction is done with paper and pencil or via text message or totally offline. And so any sort of tracking of, well, what should happen and what is happening and what are we going to do about it? And by the way, what are the cash flows associated with that? That just doesn't exist anywhere. And so when we set out to build Homebound, we set out to build a next generation home builder with technology behind every step of the process that would enable dramatically more efficient builds but also customer experiences that were totally unprecedented in the industry. And so that is the journey that we are on, but we act as a general contractor today and work with homeowners to build homes that are perfect for their families. Very cool. Now, when you got started with this, I mean, you, you were alluding to it, you know, you were, you were six months pregnant yep. uh, with your third child. And, uh, and I know that there were some interesting stories like uh, what happened when, when you guys were pitching in, in, in Cosla Ventures. Yeah. So one thing that I think is always interesting, there's so many stories of you know, women trying to raise money and having really terrible experiences. Um, and I know that those stories are out there and they exist and they're super challenging. Um, but it is really interesting and sort of tests the world of venture to show up to a series A pitch 38 weeks pregnant. And I'm not a particularly 
large human being. I'm kind of small normally, but when I'm pregnant, I like double my body weight. And so I was hugely pregnant, 38 weeks pregnant, um, pitching all of these investors. And it was really incredible experience of not a single person asked me like, why should I give you money? You obviously are about to have a baby. How are you going to build this business? Not one person asked me that. And so it was a pretty incredible testament to the belief of investors that we're going to build businesses and we're also going to build lives. And that's just how it works. Um, but in in fundraising at that late stage of pregnancy, there are lots of really funny stories. I was meeting with Vinod Kosla. I'd done a few pitches with other people at Kosla and I needed to go meet with Vinod. And I was really nearing my due date and uh, having contractions on the way down. And my baby was also sitting in a particular nerve and I couldn't see out of one eye. And so my sister lives down by Sandhill Road and I texted her and I was like, just please be on alert. I might need you. Um, and went to the meeting. Uh, Vinod now knows that this happened, but at the meeting had no idea anything was going on. It was having contractions through the entire meeting. Um, went straight to the hospital. Did not end up having the baby that day, but had the baby just a few days later. And, uh, you know, just a just a wild ride throughout the whole process. But uh, we ended up signing a term sheet with um, Josh Kushner at Thrive to lead the round. The day I got home from the hospital with my daughter, we closed the round 30 days later. Coastal participated. Um, lots of other really awesome investors participated. Uh, and we launched our second market. And my daughter was just a few weeks old. Um, took her down to Malibu and launched the second market. So that was That's a amazing. particularly crazy period for Homebound and my family. No kidding, no kidding. And and you guys have raised close to 150 million. And uh, you know, my question to you is, how has been the experience, the fundraising experience? How has it been going from one financing cycle to the next for you guys? You know, raising our Series A, we were lucky to have a lot of really incredible investors who. It's, it's easy to believe in the market size. Like we're talking about a trillion dollar industry in the US alone that's extraordinarily fragmented with terrible customer experiences. And so you don't even have to prove that. It's like, this is the biggest market ever. And we'd assembled a small team of great capable people who were on a mission to build this. And so um, we were really lucky to get a lot of great investors into our Series A. And um, the Series B, um, we also got really lucky with um, Fifth Wall, which is a awesome firm that focuses on the built world. Um, when we, we were not out raising, but they, I, I was getting a lot of inbound of people who wanted to meet and talk about the next round and we didn't need money yet. So I was mostly rejecting those meetings, but they did something really smart. They emailed and said, um, hey, can we just have 30 minutes? We have a few ideas of things that we think could help your business. Nobody, everyone else asking for fundraising meetings was saying, like, can, can we meet for an hour so that you can pitch me? And generally, like, you come to my office, which is super easy to say no to. So for venture capitalists, take note. I think this was super smart. They came to me, they asked for 30 minutes, and they said, we want to pitch you on things we can do to help your business. And they did. They came and they said, here are three things that we think we can do for you today. Introductions we can make, people who we think can be materially helpful, conversations that we think would be really good uh, context for you on the industry you're in. And I was like, this is great. Yes, you can do all this. Do you want to do this just as my friend? And they said, no, we'd actually like to lead your next round and we'll have a term sheet to you tomorrow. And they did. And so oh. they made that round um, pretty easy. And so that one also really easy. Now, the bad part about having a easy time fundraising is that you don't learn 
how to deal with a hard time fundraising. And so I think we still haven't been in a fundraising environment that's difficult, but uh, as you get to later stages, the, the stakes change. It's not just, is the market big and do I like your idea and do I like you, which is basically what series A is. And many times I think series B is the same thing with just a little bit of traction, um, which we definitely had, but series C, and I always thought this from the beginning, I was like, Ooh, series C, like you got to have your unit economics. You have to know how this is not just a good idea, but how this is actually a business and how you're on track to make this a really good business. And so the process of prepping for a series C and making sure not just that I could convince investors that we were ready for it, but first and foremost, that I could convince myself. And I think one thing about me is I'm an atrocious liar. And so if I don't believe something, not just like a little bit, but if I don't believe something like deep in my bones, I can't sell somebody else on it. And so the Series C for me was a process of meeting with a lot of investors who I knew were going to say no, but investors who I respected deeply and who I knew would tell me the truth and talking about, here's what my margins look like today. Here's what my scaling plan is today. Here's what my team looks like. What do you think? And having a lot of people say, yeah, I won't invest or I'll invest in a valuation that you don't like, or I need to see either this or that before I would invest. And so I had a lot of conversations that were pretty humbling where I was like, Ooh, like our margins aren't good enough or people don't believe the scalability of what we've built so far. Um, and so that was, I spent almost a year having a lot of conversations um, with mostly potential future investors and also some of our existing investors to think about what do we really have to prove? And we got to an inflection point where we knew we needed a launch in non-disaster markets. We went out and raised a big off-balance sheet fund that would help accelerate us into those markets. Uh, we built machine learning models that helped us acquire lots. We we completely transformed the business over the course of last year. And that was what we needed to do to unlock the Series C. It changed our margin profile. It changed our scalability. It changed the control that we had over pace of growth. And uh, in in previewing that with uh, Kosla, uh, who I spent a lot of time with, David Wyden, who's an incredible supporter of the business and thought partner on what we're building and always willing to tell me all the ways that we're doing things wrong, which is so helpful. Um, he looked at the progress that we've made and he said, this is really excellent. I think we should lead your round. And so the Series C was a little different in not as much pitching um, to look for a lead, but then we went out and filled out the round with other investors. Um, and that was actually my favorite round to raise because instead of just talking about the vision and the team and the market, I got to talk about the business. I got to talk about, like, we actually have really solid margins and a path to considerably improve our margins with just a work plan that's just a straight march towards what I know exists. There's no moonshot in this. There's no, maybe we get lucky, or if we build some really special technology we haven't built yet, maybe this happens. There's all of that, but that's upside. And so I had a really clear story. And it was also fun to get to start talking to crossover investors who think about public markets and to be playing through our path to public markets and really understanding what do you have to believe if you want to be public at a $5 billion valuation within a few years? Like, what do we need to do from a revenue perspective and from a margin perspective and a growth perspective? And what we're we going to be comped against. And so we got to answer a lot of questions that for me personally, I thought were really satisfying and really helped me get more confidence than ever before in the business that we're building and the trajectory that we're on and where we will go post-Series C 
into maybe another private round, but ultimately public markets. Amazing. Now, Nikki, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Homebound is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, well, I think the thing that's fun about our vision for me uh, is that it never ends. Like a world where anyone anywhere can build a home using technology is so expansive that there will be some version of at our current price points in our current markets where it's really easy for anyone to go online and select a lot and choose a home and personalize it to make it theirs and finance it all online. Like that will happen and it will happen very soon. But then we've got to expand and we've got to do broader price points and we've got to figure out how to help with affordable housing. And we want everyone to be able to participate in this, which means we need to create a marketplace where other builders can operate on the platform. And so we will never be done. And I think there's you know, most home builders are U.S. focused. When I think about the vision of what we're building, it shouldn't just be in the U.S. It should be everywhere. And so there are so many things that we need to build that there I cannot imagine in my lifetime that we get to a point where we say, great, we're done. I think it's going to feel like day one for the next 25 years. And that's part of why I think this is such an incredible business to build. Very cool. Now, for the people that are listening to get a better understanding of, um, you know, the 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 market, you know, and well, more than the market, you know, like the scope and the size of your guys' operation. I mean, is there anything that you could share about number of employees or anything else that you think, you know, like will give a, a good understanding to the folks that are listening? Um, sure. We have about 250 employees today. We are remote first, which means any employees who don't have to be in a specific market to build homes can operate anywhere. Um, and we are growing faster than ever before. So hiring across all teams this year. Amazing. Now, if you had the opportunity, you know, let's say if I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where you were speaking, you know, with Marco about, you know, becoming a founder and, and going at it on your own. If you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with your younger self, and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, so another entrepreneur who I respect a ton said to me one, one time around this question, if I had the chance to go back and tell my pre-launching a business self anything, I wouldn't. Because if I had any idea how difficult it would be, I never would have done it. And I think that is spot on. I think to some extent, it's it is impossible to know what it feels like to be building a business, um, how lonely it is, how hard it is, how scary it is until you're actually doing it. So I'm not sure that it actually would help to warn. But if I had any idea, I certainly wouldn't have done it. And I remember going back to Marco and to Jonathan Swanson, who's a co-founder of Thumbtack, who's also awesome and a great supporter. And I said, this is awful. Like, I must be doing it wrong. I'm, maybe I'm bad at this. Maybe that's why I hate it so much. And I remember Jonathan laughing. He was like, no, 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 that's just what it's like. I looked at him and I was like, well, why did you tell me to do it? This is torture. And he was like, well, yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, so one thing that I try to do, um, I invest in early stage founders. And one thing I try to tell everyone I invest in is this is going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. There are going to be lots of times when you want to quit and you can't. And you got to be ready for that. And the thing that I think is incredible about building something is, you know, if you're constantly expanding your 
comfort zone by living right on the edge of it, you develop into somebody who's able to do harder things and deal with more uncertainty. And that might be the biggest thing I would say for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur is it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. But also you're going to come out of it a person who is capable of doing bigger, braver, harder things than you ever would have been able to do before. And so I also think it's incredible, but mostly buckle up because it's quite a ride. I love it. I love it. So Nikki, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? And so if you're interested in a job at Homebound, reach out via our jobs page. Um, you're welcome to ping me on LinkedIn if you need something specifically from me. Um, but would encourage you, we have a fabulous people apps team and we would love to hire lots of incredible people. Um, so I guess if there's a job you're interested in. Amazing. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.